Hello, podcast listeners. Hope you're enjoying your day so far as much as I have been enjoying and being able to look up these news articles that we're going to be talking about today. With that, let's uh, start with what we're going to be able to talk about today. First, we're going to be talking about how Google is backing up a company called ShareChat in India for about $300 million in funding. Okay. Then we're going to be talking about how there is news reports currently right now of thousands of people are leaving Hong Kong. Okay. Now, I find this one to be the most interesting, especially since we've talked about what's been happening in China recently. So this is going to be a fun one to talk about. Then we're also going to be talking about how the war with Russia and Ukraine is if in fa- it's affecting insurance rates and it's also affecting the oil industry and it's helping reshape the oil industries, according to a recent article. Finally, we're going to be talking about how there's quote unquote recession fears and how it's helping, not really helping, but it's causing investors to be spooked out by cloud-based companies. While at the same time, there is economicists who say that you can expect higher prices, but low growth in the future. And we'll get into all that today with this podcast. Like I've always said, before we start every podcast, I am not a financial advisor in any way, shape or form. Everything I talk about in this podcast is for information purposes only. Please do your own research when investing and be able to talk to your own professional advisor as they understand your financial situation a lot better than I do currently. Please also note that this is for information purposes only, as we are here to report the news of what is happening in Wall Street that they sometimes are not willing to talk about. That being said, let's begin with today's news articles. First off, Google backs India share chat in a 300 million funding round at $5 billion valuation. In New Delhi, the parent company of India share chat has raised nearly 300 million in fresh funding from Alphabet Inc. or Google, media giant Times Corp and Singapore Tamask Holdings, valuing the social media firm at nearly $5 billion, two sources involved in the deal discussions told Rudders. A deal is set to be announced as early as next week, the source added. ShareChat's parent company, Mohala Tech, did not respond to a request for comment. Google and Task, uh, Tamask did not immediately respond to a request for comment, while Rudders could not immediately reach the Times group. This is Google's second key investment in India's short video space, having previously backed Josh, which competes with ShareChat's sister firm, Moj, or Moje, I think. Google investors in a bearish market for India startups show the appetite for the short video sector and that the startup's investment thesis, one of the sources said, India's tech startups, which raised a a record $35 billion in new funds in 2021, have been struggling to raise funds as corporate governance concerns loom large for investors facing new uncertainty in global markets. Short video apps like Moje and Josh shot up in popularity. After India in 2020 banned Bright Dance, TikTok, and some other Chinese apps following the uh, broader clash with China. ShareChat Share currently has 180 million monthly active users. Moj and other Mohala recently acquired MX Taka Talk has a combined user base of 300 million, according to one source. ShareChat last valued at 3.7 billion in a 266 million funding round from investors including Elicon Capital and Tamask. The firm also counted Twitter and Snap among its investors. Okay, so something I want to be able to point out about the ShareChat story too. Back in 2020, Google was in attempts to buy out ShareChat. The deal actually didn't go through at the end, but I'm also curious to know that maybe going forward, maybe Google has a little bit more stake in the game and eventually maybe Google decides to buy out ShareChat, okay? 
looking up what ShareChat is, it's it looks like it's a similar platform to WhatsApp. It's like a communication tool within the country of India. Now, if that is India's version of WhatsApp, that could be a pretty good move for Google at the end of the day. I mean, Facebook bought WhatsApp and it was probably one of the smartest moves that Facebook has ever made in the history of it, the company because now they control virtually communications throughout Europe. So maybe this is Google's next plan. Don't know, but it will be interesting to see going forward how much say Google has within the company. I mean, they did just help them raise $300 million in funding like we just talked about. So I would personally keep an eye out for that. I mean, Google is looking for new ways to grow potentially. And may, or maybe they're just trying to fund startups so they, that's their new venture of how they're going to make money. But it's still going to be interesting to see how Google gets involved more with ShareChat going forward. And I personally believe maybe they'll make another attempt to buy out the company one day in the future. Who knows? On to this next article. This article is actually reported on Friday of last week, but I think it's important to talk about today. Thousands of new people are leaving Hong Kong, and it's now it's clear where they are going. Okay. They stuck it out during the political protests in 2019. Then they lasted through nearly two years of the pandemic. But this year, they say they've had enough. Residents of Hong Kong are leaving the cities in droves in 2022. Not because they want to, several told CNBC, but because COVID restrictions and what they see as an erosion of a democratic norms are pushing them to leave. A surge in departures is accelerating a brain drain, a professional talent, a situation hit which hit hit fever pitch around March as Omicron-driven COVID cases skyrocketed across the city. Now Hong Kong's ever-chipper lifestyle websites, once dominated by articles about the city's best dime sum and foot massage parlors, are focusing on moving to-do list and farewell gift guides. The absolute mass exodus. The office of Hong Kong chief executive, Carrie Lam, did not immediately respond to a request for comment. But Lam said on April 26 that the government COVID rules balanced health and economic interests with public tolerance levels. Hong Kong continues to safeguard human rights and freedom, but that one has to observe the law in exercising freedom, she said. On the subject of people leaving Hong Kong, Lam said, it is either the individual freedom to enter and to exit. For the past 60 years, Hong Kong's population has grown nearly every year from 3.2 million people in 1961 to 7.5 million in 2019, according to Hong Kong Census and Statistic Department. From 2015 to 2019, the city gained an average of 53,000 new residents per year, yet that is roughly the same number of people who departed Hong Kong during the first two weeks of March alone, according to the city immigration department. Hong Kong lost some 93,000 residents in 2020, falling by another 23,000 early 2021. But early estimates show this year we'll see far more people go. Quote, in the last couple of years, people have thought about leaving but in the last six months, there's been an absolute mass exodus, said PC uh, or Pisces, who lived in Hong Kong for 17 years. She asked to be identified with her last initial because of sensitive surrounding the topic in Hong Kong. The trigger, she said, once echoed by numerous people spoke to CNBC for the for the story, was highly publicized policy that separated COVID positive children from their parents earlier this year. Quote, a lot of parents understandably freaked out, so they booked themselves on first flights out, she said. Um, P estimates that 60 to 70% of her friends have left in the past 6 to 12 months, which include people with business and family in Hong Kong, as well as those who were once deeply committed to staying. So the question becomes, where are these people moving to? And in this article, it says they are moving to Singapore. Most leaving, said P, are heading to some this 
to the same places, Singapore. Everyone's going to Singapore, uh, she says, especially those those workers in finance, law, and recruitment. She said, Kai Kut, CEO of Hong Kong-based relocation company Silk Relo, agreed, saying people are attracted to the ease of business, family friendliness, tax tax incentives, and open borders of Singapore. In its nearly 40 years of existence, the past three years have been the busiest year on record for Silk Relo's sister moving company, Asian Tiger, she said. Quote, we cannot keep up with the capacity, she said. We don't have enough people to serve what's going on in the marketplace. Families are transferring to Singapore, she said, but small and medium-sized businesses are also on the move. Whereas one company executive might have left in the past, now they're all going, she said. Small companies are taking the entire team and putting them into Singapore. Large companies are also relocating to Singapore, uh, said Ong, an executive director for recruitment firm Carey Consulting. She cited Laurel, Mount Hennessy, and v, v, VF Corporation, the latter which owns brands such as Timberland and North Face, for example, while noting there, there are more who haven't made their decision publicly yet. I just want to point out something which is interesting. We talked about how China is potentially going into lockdown because of the zero COVID policy. And Shanghai and Beijing are already, I guess, the well, last time we've looked into it, they were in the lockdown situation as it was. I personally believe that people are going to keep leaving, like this article says, because at the end of the day, people want their freedom and they want tax incentives. What I am going to be curious about, though, is if all the talent is currently leaving Hong Kong and going to Singapore... Will Singapore become the next hub for trading potentially? Okay. According to at least a friend I talked to once or coworker, no, not coworker, I would say. Someone I recently talked to, I'd say, we had talked about Hong Kong last week and they said that people were leaving and coming back to Hong Kong. But the reason why people came back is it was super easy to make money in Hong Kong. I wonder if that's going to be the case for Singapore going forward. And if that if that's the case, will Singapore become the new hub for investors in the Asia area? I mean, Hong, Hong Kong and Singapore, pretty similar situations, tiny cities in a way in the Asian area. Well, Hong Kong, not as much anymore because they're pretty much owned by China now. But I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen. If all the towns leaving Hong Kong and going to Singapore, does Singapore become the new trading hub? Do a lot of billionaires potentially come out of Singapore as well, who originally were from Hong Kong? Who knows? It's still, I. It's just something to think about because I wonder what's going to happen to Singapore at this rate things are going. So keep an eye out for that, people. If you want to know what's happening with China, I think Hong Kong will give you an idea of what's happening. And obviously paying attention to Shanghai and Beijing at the same time will help as well. On to the next article from London Rudders, insurance rates jump for Ukraine, war exposed businesses, source says. Insurance premiums are doubling or more for some aviation and marine businesses, particularly exposed to the war in Ukraine, increasing costs for airline and shipping firms, industrial and industry source say. Global commercial insurance premiums rose 11% on average in the first quarter, according to insurance broker Marsh, which said the war was putting forward pressure on rates. But the overall figures mask Sharp's moves in some sectors and only covers the first five weeks following the invasion. War is typically excluded from mainstream insurance policies. Customers buy extra war cover on top. 
Grant Hennerich, global head of aviation at Marsh, said aviation war insurance was no longer available for Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus as a result of the conflict. For the rest of the world, aviation war covered has doubled as insurers try as insurers insurers try to recoup some of their losses. He said the whole war market is beginning to re- reflate itself through rate rises. The conflict with Russia calls a special military operation could lead to insurance losses of 16 billion through 35 billion in so-called specialty insurance classes, such as aviation, marine trade credit, political risk and cyber S&P Global said in a report. Aviation insurance claims alone could total 15 billion. S&P Global said with hundreds of leased planes stranded in Russia as a result of western sanctions and Russia countermeasures. One aircraft leisure description recent rate increased on ins- insurance as not a pretty sight. Some aircraft leisures, a particular exposed sector of the market, because their planes are stuck in Russia, are now having to pay 10 times the original premium, one underwrite says, while another said insurers name their price to lesser, lessers. And obviously there's ship insurance too, which you're talking about too. It says in, sh- in ship insurance, policyholders pay additional breach premium when a ship enters particular dangerous waters locations, which are updated by Lloyd Market. I'm... I mean, that's just the insurance side of things on the Ukraine. Obviously, insurance prices are going to go up because insurance companies don't want to have to pay for loss of planes or ships. And now, how is this affecting oil too in Ukraine? It's saying this too. How the war, how the Ukraine conflict is reshaping global oil markets. From London, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has reconfigured the global oil market with African suppliers stepping in to meet European demand. And Moscow, stung stung by Western sanctions, increasingly tapping risky ship-to-ship transfers to get its crude to Asia. The rerouting marks the biggest supply ship uh, side shakeup on the global oil trade since the U.S. shale revolution altered the shape of the market around a decade ago and suggests Russia will be able to navigate a European Union oil ban provided Russia and China continue to buy its crude. Okay. I mean, correction, Asia and China continue to buy its crude. Okay, so we had talked about this in the past, okay, in a past podcast where when you would make sanctions on Russian oil, that Russia at the end of the day would end up just selling its oil to China, okay? And Asia, and apparently now Asia, according to this article, okay? I mean, it's good to see that these African countries are stepping up to provide oil in Europe, but at the same time, we called it here on this podcast, that they would end up shipping it to China and China's accepting it. And that's not all, okay? It says here, sanctions imposed on Moscow after the conflict in Ukraine kicked off in February, including a U.S. ban on oil imports, have prompted Russia to pivot away from Europe where its crude is shunned to customers in, here it is, India and China who are picking up cargoes at a steep discount according to Industria Data and Traders, Okay. The sanctions we put on Russia don't seem to be, I guess, working, especially if if India and China are still buying oil from Russia, okay? I mean, they're buying it. According to this article, they're buying it at steep discounts because it says here, Russian exports were back to pre-invasion levels in April. Wow. According to data from the Paris-based International Energy Agency, and oil prices have stabilized around 110 after hitting a 14-year eye of of $139 a barrel in March. 
even if the EU agrees to an oil ban in its next round of Russia's sanctions analysis said the impact could be tempered by demand from Asia. Quote, unless the West, West puts diplomatic pressure on Asia buyers, we do not see the supply gap widening and oil prices spiking, said Norbert Rucker of Julius Bearer. I mean, if you have Asia still buying the oil, because we, we've talked about this, China needs energy and so does India. Oil tends to be the cheap alternative. And last I checked too, it's not like China's going green energy across the board. No, they're saying we need more oil. I mean... In a way, China and India are pretty much going to keep funding Russia's war. That's that's how it is right now. It's a hard pill to swallow for some people. At least if they if they're hearing this right now for the first time. But we called it. We we said on this podcast that literally you're going to give these sanctions and what's going to end up happening is they're going to end up selling it to China because China doesn't care. China wants the oil. And now apparently India wants the oil as well. So at the end of the day, this war is not going to end anytime soon, which means oil prices are still going to be ridiculously high within the United States. Okay. And I mean, we didn't get that much from Russia in the first place for oil, but Europe is luckily getting stuff from African nations. Cause it says here to compensate for the loss of Russian oil, European refiners have been turning to imports of West African crude which are up 17% in April compared to the 2018-2021 average according to Petrol Logistics. Acheon data also shows increase indicates 600 barrels per day, 600,000 barrels per day mostly from Nigeria, Angola and Cameroon is arriving in northwest Europe in May with three categories of Nigerian uh amenum coming compared in 1 February. Volumes of West Africa crude to India meanwhile have nearly halved according to Gerber which 28,000 barrels per day delivered in April from 510,000 barrels per days in March as Delhi switched to Russian supply. This war is not going to end anytime soon. And, any, and if anything, Russia is probably going to end up getting a good ally in India potentially in the future because India doesn't trust China and China doesn't trust India. So in a way, Russia is using the war to make profits pretty much off of China and India at the end of the day. So yeah, things to think about people. Now for the last thing to talk about, we're going to be talking about recessions. Recession fearing investors keep slashing the fast growing cloud stocks. Ooh, so scary. Tech investors finally got some relief this past week as the NASDAQ broke a seven week losing streak. It's worst stretch since the dot-com bust of 2001. With five months in the books, 2022 has been a dark year for tech so far. That is very true. Nobody knows that more than investors and cloud computing companies, which were among the darlings of the past five years, particularly during the stay home days of the pandemic. Paradoxically, growth remains robust and businesses are benefiting as economics, as economies reopen, but investors are selling anyway. Build.com, Blend Labs, and Centennial One are still doubling their revenue year over year at 179%, 124%, and 120% respectively, Yet the trio is worth around half of what they were at the end of 2021. The market has taken a sledgehammer to the entire basket. Byron Dieter of Bessemer Venture Partners, an investor in cloud startups and one of the most vocal cloud stock uh, commentators, observed earlier this month that revenue multiplies for the firm and BV NASDAQ Emerging Cloud Index has fallen back to where it were in 2017. 
Profits, please. One of the Dieter's colleagues at Besmer, Kent Bennett, isn't sure why the fastest growings aren't getting a pass on the slash across the cloud category, but he has an idea. Quote, you you can absolutely image in a moment like this, it would go from revenue to holy crap, get me out of this market. And then settle back into efficiency over time, said Bennett, who sits on the board of restaurant software company Toast, which itself owns set 90% growth in the first quarter. The stock is now down 52% year to date. I think it's also too, because Wall Street's just panicking over everything. I mean, think about it. The invasion of Russia and of Russia on Ukraine happened in January. You have inflation going through the roof, which we've talked about in past podcasts here. And a lot of investors are just panicking in general. Okay. I mean, the party had to eventually stop and the party came crashing, obviously. But it also says here, like, it sounds like they want growth. But here's the thing. From the world economy news from CNBC, global recession, not yet. Economicists say, but brace for high prices, low growth. That's a little sus right there. Says a global recession is not intimate, but brace for rising cost and slower growth, economics say. There will be no sudden alter of stagflation, said Simon Baptist, global chief economicus at the Economicus Intelligent Unit, referring to a surprise recession after a period of stagflation. As the war of Ukraine and the pandemic disrupts continues to wreak havoc on supply chains, stagflation marked by low growth and high inflation will stick around for at least the next 12 months, Baptist told CNBC last week. Commodity prices will start to ease from next quarter, but will remain permanently higher than before the war in Ukraine for the simple reason that Russia's supplies of many commodities will be permanently reduced, he added. The pandemic as well as the war in Ukraine have stifled supply of commodities and goods and upended efficiency distribution through global supply chains, forcing up prices of everyday goods such as fuel and food. But while higher prices will cause pain for households, Growth in many parts of the world, while slow, is still tickling, ticking over and job, and the jobs market have not collapsed. Unemployment levels across many econ- economies have reached their lowest in decades. So consumers, while wary of the repeat of the last global recession brought on by the U.S. subprime crisis over 10 years ago, need not start preparing for a recession. Quote, for almost all economics of Asia, a recession is fairly unlikely if we're talking about s- successive periods of negative GDP, Baptist told CNBC Street Signs on Thursday. Yeah, we're going to find out who's right soon when second quarter results come in soon. If the second quarter has negative growth, then we're going to be facing issues. I mean, it's kind of funny that they make these articles and they're like, oh, there's no recession. And yet we have high, we've talked about this obviously in the past two in podcasts, we've have high gas prices. We have inflation. Prices are going up across the board. That kind of seems like a recession. Now, granted, there are a lot of jobs out there, but as I've mentioned in the past too, what are the jobs that are being posted currently? I mean, if they were like super high tech jobs, that would be a different story. But if it's like, oh, work at a fast food restaurant, is that really like, I'm not saying it's not a decent job, but I mean, a job's a job at the end of the day, but it, it just makes me wonder what are these jobs that are being posted? I mean, it says here, it says 
later on in the article, even if the global economy is at risk of recession, many consumers have AMP savings and have stocked up on household durables, the economics say. See, that goes against what we read and then we keep reading that people are tapping into their savings and people are tapping into credit card debt. So which is it? It's hard to tell. Someone's not telling the truth in Wall Street, whether it's CNBC or some other news article, someone's not telling the truth. And eventually the tide will wash away and we'll know what's happening really. Last thing we'll talk about in this article, yield curves or the gap between long-term bond yields and short-term rates have yet to decisively invest or warn of a recession. And even if they do now, the average lead to recession is 18 months, he said in a note. He takes the view that a bear market can avoid in the US and in Australia. At the same time, central banks across the globe are tightening up interest rates to combat inflation. The U.S. Central Bank announced its biggest rate hike in more than 22 years earlier this month, raising its benchmark interest rates by half a percentage points and warning of further rate hikes. We're going to find out real soon who's right. This article just does not seem like it's being completely honest. I mean, people have savings, and yet we keep reading that people tap into their savings. Someone's lying. We don't know who it is currently right now, but we'll find out soon. And when that time comes... We'll talk about it and we'll cover it here on this podcast like we always do. But I have a feeling currently right now that maybe we're already in it. I've, I've mentioned this in the past, but I just it just seems like we're already in it. And maybe I'm wrong and I hope I am wrong. And if I'm wrong, I'll admit I'm wrong. So just keep an eye out for that, guys. Don't know who's telling the truth currently. We're just reporting things so that people get a better understanding of what's happening out there in the world currently right now. So... With that being said, guys, thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. I thank you listeners for always listening into this podcast every time I record. Please, if you have enjoyed this podcast today, that you please follow this podcast and share it with friends or family because the more we can grow this podcast, the more we'll be able to cover on this podcast going forward. With that being said, guys, thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. Thank you and goodbye.